UX Podcast Episode 157. This is UX Podcast with me, James Roy Lawson. And me, Per Axbom. Coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 167 countries from India to Ireland. Haha, <laughs> fantastic. Oh, and we want to remind you again that it's uh, listener survey time, which means you get to give us feedback on us as your hosts, on the topics, on the length of the show. Challenges that you faced just now as a UXer? Yeah, things like that. And... Uh, Fantastic. And thank you to all of those who have filled in the, in the survey as well, because it gives us a lot of, of stuff to think about when, when uh, continuing our development of the podcast. This is part two um, of our recent listener phone-in. Um, towards the end of March, we got um, set up in Studio Axboom and opened up the phone lines, as you say, the video lines for um, a two-hour live chat about UX. Some of the topics that we've already talked about in part one and will talk about in part two were UX books that you could read, UX analytics, the difference between UX designers and interaction designers, share buttons on websites, data scientists, agile ways of working, delight, and normalizing incompetence. Mm. And that's Craig Sullivan who rang in to talk about that. And he's coming up in this part. And speaking of incompetence. No, what have I done? No, I forgot to mention the URL to the listener survey. So people are just now sitting and wondering, well, how do I answer the listener survey? And I'm going to say it's uxpodcast.com slash survey. No one will ever notice you made that mistake, Pat. <laughs> Thanks. So what articles did you guys bring? What do you want to talk about? Well, one, <clears throat> one article that, um, that got me going this week and I, I, sh- I shared around a little bit um, was... Um, um, was the article that Josh Clark uh, published on Big Medium about um, share buttons, and um, basically they'd um, um, with the work that they've been doing um, on a, a, a couple of um, projects, um, they've um, they've gathered a lot of data about um, how um, social share buttons um, are being used. So <clears throat> there was, I think, it's Philly.com and um, certain parts of about.com they've been gathering data from this is one of those topics that has come up you know numerous times over the last 10 years i reckon i mean when since we first started adding share buttons you know in the early days of twitter we went crazy adding you know twitter you know twitter share buttons to every single website and and i remember i remember spending a fair bit of time pointing out to people about how slow it made their websites um because you had like you know four scripts for all these different you know this facebook that was Twitter, yeah. there was all these other kind of ones, and and you know you're you're on the mobile and the website's just kind of like ju- ju- mm-hmm. it's like loading from a floppy disk. It's so slow because of all these different scripts, yeah. um, which are also tracking you across. Oh, the web. But back then, I don't think it was. It wasn't quite as that. That wasn't quite the main thing they were doing back in two thousand eight. No, but yeah. but, um, but it was slowing sites down. Mm-hmm. And as you know, when I did tracking about them, I couldn't see people using them. And uh, as you know, I've been an Android user for for a long time as my main device. And I never clicked on any of these buttons. I always used the inbuilt share function on the, on, on my device. Um, exactly. And I know as UXers, we all know that you shouldn't have a sample size of one, especially mm. not when that sample that's, that, that one is you, yourself as a designer. Mm. You don't base your solutions on what you do. 
Um, <laughs> but God damn it, with share buttons, I would do. <laughs> Clearly, everyone just, you know uses the share but share features inside the phone, not um, not the buttons. But Josh Clark, in his article, um, he's putting forward some some data, some evidence to back up um, some of their 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 theories. And you know, their theory was people don't use them. Mm. And they prove their th- well, their hypotheses. They blew it out of the water to a degree. So this is connected back to the chat we had, um, which was about analytics. They blew it out of the water. Does that mean that they agreed or no, did not agree? They, they, the- well, they, they basically <laughs> they, they proved their hypothesis, hypothesis to be wrong. Or they, or they proved a variation of it to be right. That <laughs> This is confusing. Sorry. <laughs> basically, most people don't use the share buttons. Yeah. But when they split the data up, they found there was a segment of people who really, really did use them. What does that mean? How large is that segment? Well, who are they? This, the people who used them, what it was was, it was, um, um, it was people coming from a particular social network. They were 20 times more likely um, to use the share button for the network they've just come from. So, for example, if you click through from Twitter to an article, mm. you were 20 times more likely to use the Twitter share button ah. than any other groups of people. If you so it's like through, it's like priming. It's a, I you guess have, you could you say have that. a service top of mind, and you see a logo for that service. You sort of think, yeah, that's what I'm related to right now. That's yeah. Yes. Or, or it could be that you are clearly a user of that service, hmm. so you're very aware of the of of what's going to happen when you click on the on the share. Or there's more familiar familiarity with the process and what's going to happen course, when you click on yeah. it. So if you've come from Facebook, clicked on a link, arrived on a page, you're more likely to click on mm. the Facebook share because you understand where it's going to be, what's going to happen. Mm. So it's less surprising. So, so what Josh um, says here is that they, um, another thing they, they've, they've done and, and shown to be successful is you supersize the preferred network. And this, this, this kind of tweaking the UI I really like. Mm. That you, so now we know that or they know because they looked at the data, mm. that if you come in from a social, certain social network, you're more likely to click on the button. Yeah. Mm. So make the button for that network bigger. Yeah. So you look and say, okay, person's come from Twitter. We make the Twitter button big. Huh. And the other ones, if we're going to provide any other ones, we make them, we make them yeah. secondary. See, it's, in some ways, it's classic call to action stuff. It is. Um, mm. Now that you've found the evidence that says, mm. this is the button more likely, most likely for them to click, mm. make that button the real focus. Mm. Yeah. Love that way that they've worked with the um, the Great. data there, um, and then they 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 added to a they added to this by saying never more than three. They tried, mm. and three was the, mm. was the limit. Anything more, it 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 killed the um, the success of the the primed one. Ah, interesting. interesting. That's always yeah. been my theory. That yeah, well, it's also basic psychology. Mm. Mm. The more options you have, the less likely you yeah. are to choose anything. Yeah. And. Um, Another one was um, verbs do better than nouns, and this this actually from a as far as kind of language mm. UX, mm. Um, I, I think this is really interesting. Mm. Um, that having say using the native language of the network you're coming from performs better than generic. So, for example, having having tweet on the enlarged mm. Twitter button for people coming from Twitter mm. worked better than having Twitter. I, I like that mm. well, what they did about enlarging the buttons depending on which social media they came from because that sort of ties into the thing that you design for your audience based on their behavior but 
how would you do if you would want to change that behavior? Because this way you're just serving and enabling yeah. the continuous behavior. You're strengthening something. Yes, yeah. that's already there. What if you want to encourage more people to use um, sharing? We have a question in the chat oh, okay. mm -hmm. from Robert Luciani. The taxonomy you use to describe designers is very similar to how data scientists describe themselves. How are these two disciplines converging, diverging, or rela related? So by two disciplines, we're talking about um, designers and data scientists. Yeah. You need both, and it's nice if they know a bit about each other's work, I guess. Uh, yeah, Ooh. so they have a common language, but I think... I sort of understand where he's <laughs> hinting at, I think. Um, I think data scientist is a very hyped title, hmm. and a lot of people assign that title to themselves. Uh, maybe what Robert is alluding to is that maybe it's something similar to what a lot of people all of a sudden become UX designers. Rob, Robert, if you uh, please call in and 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 give us some kind of more background yeah. to to your question. It's, Tell it's, us what um, a data scientist is, even. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> we, I think I think data scientist. That's another one of those. Mm. Just like with UX designers, you're saying that um, you know, you're you're you get quite quickly to personal definitions mm. and you know does a data scientist is mm. it is it kind of like using uh, using data to 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 f you know using massive amounts of data to 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 bring up. Um, insights across a large data set that wouldn't normally otherwise be seen. Mm. Um, uh, you know, if that's what we're talking about with data scientists, then that's not quite the same thing as what I may mm. be talking mm. about, where you kind of like maybe would look at some of the details mm. of, and the finesses of, 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 mm. of um, a user's journey through data mm. um, rather than big data as a whole. Can I, can um, I just read this from, from Wikipedia? Mm. Okay. Data science, also known as data-driven science, is an interdisciplinary field about scientific methods, processes, and systems to extract knowledge or insights from data in various forms, either structured or unstructured. Mm. So I think it stems from statistics. Yeah. Just like, um, but now with data scientists, they try to m make meaning out of the numbers. So. Exactly. Which mm. is exactly what yeah. UXers do. Exactly. <laughs> so it's just we're doing the same thing. Which mm. it, it's, it's, it's interesting you said you put it like that, Danway, because the next the next paragraph on Wikipedia is data science is a oh, well. concept to unify <laughs> statistics, data analysis, and their related methods in order to understand and analyze and analyze uh, you understand and analyze actual phenomena with data. Mm. Oh. So you, did you write did you write that? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to check the I'm going to check the talk page now and see <laughs> the edit history and see what Danway's been doing. <laughs> All, all of the work we do, we're not islands anymore. I mean, you can't just do that bit and then pass it on mm. to the next person. They do the next bit. Mm. It's not a production line mm. from from A to Z involving you know twenty six people that hand off between mm. each other. We're we're, we're increasingly working um, cross discipline, mm. cross team, mm. um, and um, you know having feedback loops in an incredibly short amount of time. Or then there's also long term feedback loops, and so this, you know we're we're, we're we're working across time and across disciplines. It, it's interesting because we started the podcast uh, understanding or having the insight about UXers, always talking about that other people are working in silos uh, and then realizing, well, we're working in a silo as well. Mm. Uh, and this definitely relates to that. So what are we doing to help other people understand mm. uh, the benefit of our output? 
uh, we're failing miserably because if UX designers are just in other people's eyes interaction designers, uh, then we are not communicating our value at all. Uh, I always think that I would rather work in a, in a startup because then I could actually do all the work from start to finish uh, the way I would want to. But now I always have to argue for uh, getting into the right meetings, meeting the right people, yeah. uh, and people are always questioning, well, why would you want to know that? Or we already know this because we've done this survey, but I I don't trust, well, that's a problem in itself. I don't trust the way that other people draw their conclusions. So I think design today, we don't, we don't use, we like to talk about the scientific method. Most of us touch upon the scientific method. We use hypotheses. Mm. We try to verify them, but we don't mm. work with different samples and AB groups and like, we like, don't work like in a real scientist. We don't work in labs. Mm. Yes, you can have user research, you know, usability testing, mm. and, and have a lab that you do that in. But that in itself is not a it's not controlled in the yeah. same way you control exactly. an experiment for science. And also, you science. don't have a control group. So if you did yeah. usability testing, you would want to have one room where you have the the site as it looks today, and another room the site as it, you want it to look, and see if how 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 different they perform. And a clone of mm -hmm. the participant. But damn it, we're not answering the question. I know that there are a lot of uh, these courses to educate. Um, future developers so take a crash course in this and then they usually have a small portion like maybe one day about UX mm. or maybe one hour or two hour about UX if it's mm. just a couple of days course what should be taught there do you think if it's a become a software developer in two weeks what do they need to know about design and UX I think it's behavioral science mm. uh, understanding uh, people, brains, mm. how they work, how habits form, uh, how small things can pose huge problems, mm. but also the value of watching real people use their service. Because I think those are the times I've seen the biggest aha moments mm. when developers have watched people use the thing they built. Mm. I think that what needs to be taught is not maybe the skills of a designer, but like you say, to, to open their eyes and make them realize the potential value yeah. that designers can bring and maybe get them to understand that because I don't think anybody expects someone to learn a whole profession in a couple hours or a day. Exactly. So just making them see the potential value, I think, is what's important. Oh, someone is calling in. We have Craig <laughs> Sullivan, and we've actually already mentioned you once this evening. Yes, we on have. The live show. Yeah. We uh, actually just just before you phoned in, we were talking about um, well, a combination of gamification, yep. um, and delight, yeah, well, usability and, usability and optimi conversion optimization. rate optimization, mm. and trying to figure out what what how they're related. We we mm. had a conversation on Twitter with someone yesterday about um, delight. Well, we w delight in the UX world is generally considered to be design details, micro but micro interactions, and and you know I, I was putting forward the the, the line that I think it's, I um, think it's creating have... emotional states or affecting the emotional yeah. state of people. Um, one of the best tests I ever ran was twenty people that I put through a usability test, right, and I got them all to rate how easy it was to use. And the only thing that I changed between two groups of people was the error messages. And one group. They were really shitty, horrible, evil error messages. Like, you've done bad, boy. <laughs> you know, or like, invalid postcode. The kind of stuff that you see on a lot of sites. 
And then around your, your name is wrong. It was really nice. <laughs> had nice friendly error messages, right? And do you know what? The people who had the nice friendly error message version rated it over two points higher out of ten than the other one. And there wasn't any difference, right? Their perception was that it was easier to use. Um, was mainly brought about because of the copy treatment, not patronising them and making them feel like they'd fucked up when they were trying to fill in the forms. So even without making a single change, you can actually affect people's perception of how delighted or happy they are with something just by not doing the things that act in the opposite direction. Mm. But I was saying, though, that you you have diminishing de- diminishing returns of delight, that, that the first time it can be delightful, but the the hundredth time... The same thing is not going to be as delightful. Oh, I'm not. It's, I'm not so. It wears. It wears I'm off. I'm not so sure about that. You know, I'm still continually delighted by just how easy to use and simple an app like Buffer is. So I use Buffer for queuing things on social networks, and there are occasionally new details surface in that product that delight me. But generally, I'm just delighted because it does things with so little fuss, right? So, uh, but isn't that satisfaction? That's not delight. That's satisfaction, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I know we're going to get to semantics of words, but 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 that kind of continuous satisfaction. No, I think it's, I think it's a good issue, and a, a good question, and it's one we were talking about today because I'm continually annoyed by this kind of thing where it's like, ah, oh, right, let's just rummage around in a bag of psychological techniques, right, and throw them at people like grenades. I know what these people need. They need some fucking urgency in their lives, right? Or some some scarcity. <laughs> we need to make them feel scared that they're going to lose all their stuff, right? And and that was just that. that you know, I mean, it, it, it's just like you're trying to pick some techniques without any knowledge of the customer. It's saying, I, I don't care what your problem is. The solution is to make you feel shit scared you're not going to be able to buy your tickets today. And that, that to me yeah. just doesn't work. You know, so I kind of get annoyed with this over application of psychological principles like it's something you do to somebody rather than an understanding about people's worries fears barriers motivations their tasks and goals that they have in mind being able to utilize that knowledge to change the way that your product is designed uh, so that it then causes people to be delighted with that outcome that's the kind of thing i'm talking mm-hmm. about but there's a lot of people still you know, via Google was the one website I looked at the other day, and they have this message with flames on it saying our servers are overloaded, kind of like, you better buy your ticket soon. And it turns out that actually this isn't true at all. So they're unethically slagging off their own service in order to try and influence customers to buy more. I'm not sure it's a really good strategy. <laughs> but the, but this is the, the kind of the whole thing of that pressing those psychological triggers and buttons to 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 stress people to worry people to to basically make people feel ill. Yeah. I mean, you might you might short term be able to kind of increase you know the number of people taking the action you want, but but long term we're going to hell. Yeah, but it, it's just uh, the thing that's missing is the intent and the context, right? And we don't have any of those, so we're basically guessing around them. So a classic example here is right. You go to booking.com and there are all these messages everywhere. And it is a lovely service and I really like it. I'm not slagging it off. But I sometimes feel when I go to buy, uh, to get hotels or book stuff that I normally book, I get the feeling I'm being ninjured, right? I'm just, that these things mm-hmm. are jumping out at me. And there's no need for it because my motivation level is high. I book that same hotel every time. They ought to know this stuff, right? So why are they throwing all this messaging at me? And the answer is because on average, 
that stuff works, right? But that means it works for some people, but it pisses off some other people. And I think the thing that people miss out when they're applying these techniques is they fail to measure the qualitative impact. And when I was working at Autoglass, because we were able to run experiments and collect the NPS scoring on both sides of the cohorts, we could run an A-B test and we could go, do you know what? That version B makes loads more money, but it's kicked our fucking NPS score in the teeth, right? So mm. we're obviously doing something that's working. We get higher conversion, but at the cost of how people feel. And I think we, oh, that's we, fantastic. we don't measure yeah. that. So I was talking to the guys at Google today mm. about voice as a transport. And in future, my analytics data is going to have to include voice stress data. It's going to have to include facial expression, recognition, micro gestures on my face. That thing has got to know that I'm pissed off or I'm struggling or I'm going through friction. So my house Mm. is going to need to actually read some emotional indicators. There are even ways of uh, working out kind of a rough level of emotional state by using Wi-Fi signals. That's kind of scary. Um, But... You know, even if you had a basic device that had, you know, was sending data back about your heart rate monitor to your house AI, right? That kind of information could potentially be used to actually find out. Because imagine I'm talking on the phone, uh, I'm talking to an artificial intelligence about buying some tickets and it makes me angry and I just shout at it, right? How are we going to detect that? I mean, web analytics is kind of relatively easy. But this stuff is going to be so much more complicated because there won't be a web page anymore. In fact, there may not even be any interaction like we think of nowadays. I may ask the house and the house will go off and buy a pair of tickets for me at a concert by going to a ticket arbitrage site. Right. So it becomes a platform and a service. Right. So then my whole experience is how good my house AI is at interfacing with all these other systems. It's not about how good their websites are anymore. So we put words into your mouth, sort of. Uh, did you have a question for us, or were you just calling in to be nice? No, I was just calling in to say hi. I was, I was kind of, I yeah. did a presentation today, at Google, just sort of about how broken this stuff is. You know, I think if we are car manufacturers mm. and we are building stuff this way, then people would be, you know, dying or Death. really unhappy. We'd yeah. have millions of cars getting recalled. Mm. But it, 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 uh, the thing I can't understand is that, you know, someone will go. Oh, you know, oh, it's a bit funny that website, or you know, like, oh, it's just, it's really hard to use, or, oh, I'm just having to fill this out and go through one of these form things, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, they'll kind of accept these level of defects in a web product, right? But if you had the shit in a car, oh, I can't read the speedo at all in my car, right? And and the brakes work intermittently, and occasionally it crashes. The 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 sat nav and the home and, and the entertainment system totally crash. But hey, it's a great car. It's not. You don't hear these things with these other products. It's almost like we have actually, you know, inured people. We've coached them uh, into accepting a level of defects in web products. We've normalized the, it. We've we've normalized. Yeah, we've normalized shit. And there's a lot of shit web experiences out there. So like, you know, you wouldn't go and spend this amount of money on a service or a gem or some sort of service that you're buying and accept these level of sort of casual defects tossed into it. But the worst thing is, is it's not just that it's pissing off people. It costs a lot of money. Um, so one of the, the geeky exercises I did recently was work out when you rip the microwave container lid off a microwave meal and the plastic 
doesn't come off, right? So you get a little square bit around the edge or it rips into like eight or nine pieces. How much time does that take to sort out? And I actually worked out it's 850,000 days of lost time in five <laughs> EU countries a year. We're talking nearly a million days of human life sucked and forever gone picking bits of fucking plastic out of their dinner because the designers couldn't put a fucking lid on it or a piece of plastic that came off in one, right? So because of their de design neglect, they have now injected a loss of a million days of productivity into Western European economies just through that one thing. So, I mean, I can't... I haven't even gotten around to quantifying the kind of defect levels and the frustration, but this stuff must cost a lot of emotion, anger, adrenaline, stress. I mean, what it's adding to the so sum total of human existence is fucking misery, right? Uh, but nobody seems to get punished for it. Craig, you have just summarized uh, and answered the most of the questions that we've been frustrated about the, the past hour or so in, in 10 minutes, which is fantastic. <laughs> Uh, we love it when you rant, Craig. See you guys later and have a lovely evening. Touch soon, Craig. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Let's talk about takeaways yes. from, from today's show. My biggest takeaway was, was Craig saying we're normalizing shit uh, because that actually uh, aligned very well with what we were talking about mm. previously yeah. with uh, sa be, or settling with uh, solutions that we're not quite happy with, but we can't figure out how to get... Uh, mandate or people to people on board to, to do it the right way mm. yeah still disagreeing about what's the right way still not surfacing value although the value we are surfacing is deemed good enough <laughs> I hate the whole good enough thing it's depressing yeah. but does it have to be and I, I agree I think it's sort of depressing to settle for mediocre mm. but it's a lot of time and a lot of effort that needs to put in to push beyond the 80% mm. probably much more than what it took to even push to 80 percent uh, and that's and that's just the quality aspect of what we're talking about i mean if, mm. we, if we flip it and look at what we're doing to younger generations in 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 the way that we're going back to gamification or or, mm. or um some of the psychological aspects of stuff you know we're we're, we're constantly producing services and things and games that are that are making kids lives a misery in long term you know, we've got, we've got net hate and bullying that's at, you know, that's at levels that we've never experienced yeah. in the history of mankind. Mm. We we'd, we'd haven't been bullying each other this much and this openly and, uh, you know, this often, mm. ever. You, yeah. know, you used to be able to kind of hide into the safety of your own home <clears throat> at the end of the day. I mean, now you can't. I mean, you've got a device that's constantly attacking you. And mm. we've got Snapchat that's, mm. that's giving you, that's encouraging you to kind of do something every single day. Um, but, the but the streaks, reason you or, also or, are or using Pokeball Pokemon yeah. streaks and things, all these things to encourage daily use of stuff, not because it's good for you. No, not because it's good for you, because it's addictive. It's because it's good for the company or whoever's mm. producing the, the service mm. or the app. I, mean, I just wanted to try to flip it because I think all these services are sort of also inspiring the fact that we can make things um, so easily, mm. so quick and dirty. I mean, quick and dirty doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, as long as the quick and dirty is not the final version of what you want to make. Well, you could you could actually argue that this is a quick and dirty solution for a live show. Well, there's lots of cables, but it's I mean it's not a real studio in a television studio, but we can go live to mm. the whole world. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And we'd like to think it's delightful. I think a lot of companies start out with the right intent. Mm. They they see a problem and they want to fix it. 
they see a need and they want to fill that need. And then they have to make uh, a living out of it. And they panic and they realize that, shit, we have to make more money. How do we do that? And they go to these conferences and listen to these talks about people talking about conversion rates. And uh, you think about, okay, so I need to do that. And they look at these numbers. Okay, so if I do this, then more people will spend more money on me. Excellent. And that's what happens. I wish people would take a step back and figure out, why did I start this business in the first place? What was my end goal? What did I want to give people? Uh, and if we can get back to that, thinking about my intent, my intended outcome for other human beings, uh, and focus more on that, finding ways to measure that and not just measure the short-term outcome for the business, but the long-term outcome for the individual that you're, you're talking to on the other side. So thanks to Craig, Craig Sullivan, for um, calling in. And um, also to, to all of you that posted questions via the chat during the live um, phone-in and that we've answered in last week's part one and this week's part yeah. two. Excellent fun with all the chats. Uh, kind of hard sometimes to actually be talking and looking at the chat and, and being with everybody at the same time. But it, it tries. it's testing. It's, it's fun, but it's testing. Yeah, it's, it's, in some ways it's easy to be present when you've got yeah. a person's face on the video rather than a text <laughs> question yeah. to respond to. This has been UX Podcast with James Royal Lawson, Pat Axpo, and Danwe Tran Luciani. Thank you for listening and remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Who's there? Yodelehi. Yodelehi who? <laughs> I didn't know you could yodel, James. <laughs> yodelehi who? <laughs>